my job, where my spouse lost their job? Where were you, Lord, when I, I struggled through disease and illness or watched my family member, my child, struggle through disease or illness? Where were you, Lord, in the midst of cancer? Where were you, Lord, as the world is hurting, violence is reigning, and morality is dying? Where are you, Lord, in, in the midst of the greatest struggle that I've had? I need you right now. Where are you? When I needed you most, you are nowhere to be found. Where were you when I lost that loved one to COVID in the last two years? Have you ever heard people ask those types of questions? Or maybe you've been the one that has posed questions like that. If you are, you're not alone. It's, it's a pretty common way of feeling. And, and let me put your mind at ease. It's an okay way to feel. But it, those are the hard questions of faith. How many times ourselves or through the lens of other people, maybe those who know Jesus, maybe those who refuse to get to know him because of precisely those questions, but how many times have you heard those types of things come across or had them in your mind and just felt too guilty to utter them out loud? Maybe even today, and one of those questions just stung a little bit. It's part of the norm of Christian life. If you heard these questions, you are not alone. And the things that are worse, if we're asking those questions, are the Christian platitudes that we sometimes throw out at them. Right? Well, God works good for all of those who love him. By the way, if you ever say that verse to a grieving widow at a funeral, and I hear about it, I'll talk to you. Because you don't, <laughs> don't do that. Sit with them, grieve, and cry. Don't ever say those things. Right? If you have experienced pain and loss, and you've been questioning how God could possibly be at work in the midst of it, what is it that he could be doing? And someone just walks to you and says, well, God works. You know, it says in the, in the Bible that he works for the good of all those. So just chill. Right? That means nothing to you in the moment. Those are hard, hard truths to wrestle with. And so often in our world, it is normal to feel that way. When we grieve loss especially, there are times as the world comes and turns and life goes on and the years keep moving forward, there are times in our lives where it seems like God is just absent or at the very least he's watching but just doesn't seem to care. If you feel that way or have ever felt that way, then the characters of today's passage could probably relate to you if they were still alive. They would probably put their arm around you and say, yeah, I know exactly what you're feeling and going through. And so this morning, we want to take a look at the Lazarus story in John 11 and what Jesus does with that family and how he does it. And I think one of the things we'll come to do is learn about how God works versus how we want him to work. We'll learn about perspective and how important it is to the Christian life. But before we get there, some context. 
last week, uh, we, we looked at John 9, and as, as it wraps up, uh, we, we skipped today a chapter. We skipped chapter 10. And chapter 10 is the Good Shepherd passage. It's, you know, Jesus walks, and he's, he's talking to the leaders, and he's talking to the disciples, and he, he says, I am the Good Shepherd, right? The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he talks about this idea of being the shepherd. And the, the Pharisees wrestle with him again and again. Every time Jesus says something, they're just on him now. It's like they're following him, trying to take notes to find something to trip him on. And they head him off at every pass and every turn. And, and the violence, or the call for it at least, against Jesus is ramping up significantly. And so by the end of chapter 10, we find Jesus running. Right? This is, we have a map here of Israel just to give you some context of where we are today. Sometimes that's helpful. Right? Jesus is in the temple. He was cast out by the temple as he heals the blind man. He has this debate about the good shepherd. And they try to arrest him. And he escapes, it says, at the very end of 10. And when he escapes, he escapes to the wilderness. And where you see that Jesus is teaching in this area circle, from Jerusalem to there, is where he escapes. And he starts to teach in the wilderness. And, and, and 10 ends with this idea that as he's teaching, people are coming to him where he is, safely, hidden away. And a whole lot of folks are receptive to his teaching. It says that many heard and believed during this time. And so as Jesus escapes, he starts having this fruitful ministry in the midst of, of the wilderness and semi-hiding from the authorities that want to arrest him. And so even in hiding... He is tremendously effective. And people come and people believe. And so he has this like wilderness ministry that's thriving. Kind of sounds like John the Baptist a little bit, doesn't it? Right? He's doing really well, but then hears about this family emergency happening back in Bethany. And all I want you to do is to see where Bethany is in relationship to Jerusalem. Bethany to Jerusalem is like Shaker Heights to Cleveland downtown. Maybe not mileage-wise. I'm not, you know, don't, someone's going to come to me afterwards and say, it's actually, you know, four times as many miles. It's a suburb, okay, of Jerusalem. The point is to go to, go to Bethany is really to go to Jerusalem in a way. Right? And that'll come in later in this passage. And so when we pick up in, in John 11, what we have is Jesus in the wilderness, hiding, teaching. People are coming to him. He's being effective. But then comes news of a tragic emergency and we'll pick it up in John 11, verses 1 through 16 for now. And we should stand for the word of the Lord. <clears throat> we're going to make this a habit. This is the third time we've done that, and we're Presbyterian. So therefore, it's now how we've always done it. <laughs> I know the church I signed up for. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then this, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, 
and you are going there again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. In some ways, this is, this is a hard text to process, right? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were some of Jesus' most special people. Think of that house that you, maybe it's your aunt's house, or you know, maybe it's the home you grew up in. You know, wherever you go in life, no matter how far away from your home that you move, when life goes to shambles, it, there's the, you know there's that one place where you can go and find peace. Right? Maybe it's the house of a friend. Maybe it's the house of someone in this room with you right now. Right? But we know those places. For Jesus, the, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was such a place. It's where he could find refuge and peace. It's where he could, in a, in a human sense, let his feet down, so to speak, and be himself. Not that Jesus was ever not himself. But it was, it was a family that Jesus loved and a safe place for Jesus in a world where he's running out of safe places, as we'll get to at the end of today, right? And so they send word that he's ill, and you have to understand, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they know Jesus. They're not, you know, an official's father or son over there. They're not a blind person by the side of the road. They're intimate friends of Jesus. They know who he is, and they know what he's done, and they know what he's capable of. And so when Lazarus falls ill, they don't even send for help. They don't send a message of, Jesus, we need you, come help us. They simply send a message of, hey, Jesus, Lazarus is ill. Because <clears throat> they assume what? Jesus will pick up and steal the first animal that he can find that's rideable and get himself back to Lazarus as soon as he can. Right. If you get the call that your kid is in the hospital right now, guess what? You're going to leave. You don't care what I have to say. If I got a call that one of my kids was in the hospital, I would leave mid-sermon and wouldn't care what you thought about it. We would run to the aid of those whom we love dearest. And so they just say, he's ill. The one who you love is ill. And Jesus responds, nothing like you would expect. Right? He stays two days. He goes, oh, great. And then he stays where he was for two more days while Lazarus continues to progress downward in illness. And this is one of those times, the most kind of commonly known Greek word that you ever study. The person who has attended an audited seminary and gone to one Greek class a day in their life knows, knows about this. In Greek, right, we have this multiple amount of meanings and words for the English word love, right? And so while we can love ice cream and love our spouse and use the same word, right, the Greeks don't do that. They use a whole plethora. There's like seven or eight words, really, but, but a couple big ones. And so in this passage, it's significant that when it talks about Mary and Martha, 
talking about how much they love Jesus, they use this word philea. It's a brotherly type of love, right? They, they love one another the way that we might love each other in this church as, as the body of Christ. You know, we, we love one another. We have a brotherly and sisterly love and affection for one another. We, as a matter of fact, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so this, 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 this brotherly, you know, just this friendly, we, I give you the shirt off my back, right, kind of love. When the word love for Jesus in the active sense is used, it uses the agape love, which is the most deep, binding, incomprehensible kind of love, right? The kind of love that you have the first time you look at your born child. And so the Greeks, they, they understand how to do language way better than we do. And so there's a comparison in this passage between the level to which right, these people say they love Jesus and the level to which Jesus replies. And so in this, in this text, we have Jesus talking about how much he loved them, agape, but then chooses to ignore the call to help and stay for two more days where he was. It makes no sense. It just doesn't add up. Why would he, why would he do that? And this is one of those texts that's hard. Like, does Jesus not care? And so picture being Mary and Martha, <clears throat> watching your brother progress. You know how far away Jesus is. You know that he's gotten the word. And you've done the math in your head of it's probably going to take him a day or whatever to get to me. And the day comes and goes, no Jesus. The next day comes and goes, no Jesus. The next day comes and goes, no Jesus. And then your brother Lazarus dies. It's one of those passages that from an earthly standpoint just doesn't make sense. And I know we know what comes next, but just pretend that you don't for a second. This is agonizing stuff. Right? Where were you, Lord, when my brother was dying and you loved him, agape loved him and knew about it? We'll even see later in the passage, she, she says it outright to Jesus. Both of them do. Both Mary and Martha do. <coughs> And he, he, and he gently leads them through it. But where were you? We have these passages in Scripture where we have characters undergo pain that seems to suggest that God isn't part of things, that he's not doing anything. Right? You picture the Joseph story in Genesis 37 when, when Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery because he's a loudmouth and arrogant. Right? But then ends up being used. But we have to understand that the passage, the length between that is, is decades we see what God was doing, but for decades and decades, Joseph is just going to struggle. He's honest and gets put in jail for it. Right? He eventually finds redemption, but it takes him a really, really long time. And so imagine being in his shoes and spending decades and decades and decades trying to figure out, God, where are you? I'm faithful. I listen. I'm doing everything you ask me to do. I'm living according to your word. What are you doing? Or picture being Job. Faithful Job having his whole family plucked away from him and everything he's owned just lost and gone to ashes. And then when he starts to question God about it, God shows him what's up in reply. He says, oh, I'm sorry, Job. Where were you when I made the mountain? I don't know, God. Where were you when my family got annihilated? Or picture Ruth, at least the first half of it. Right? The faithfulness of people through Scripture who don't know what's coming next and are living in a way that seems to suggest that God just hasn't, is not active as a participant in their lives, that he's not doing anything. When it happens, it is incredibly difficult to reconcile. And so that's what we see here with Mary and Martha as Lazarus dies. 
And as we move forward in the passage, we're going to start to see this play out. After enough time has passed, Jesus tells the disciples that they're now going to go back to, to Judea. They're going to go back to the area. Uh, they're going to go back towards Jerusalem. You know, Bethany is where Lazarus and them were. And remember, Bethany is the suburb. So we're going to go back to Shaker Heights, where Lazarus is dead. And the disciples are worried. It's like, you know, like that's where the people that are trying to arrest you are. Like They want to they jail you and then stone you to death. Are we sure we ought to go back there? Right? And Jesus is like, yeah, we're going back there. And that's why Thomas has this, this brilliant, you know, it doesn't sound comical when you read it. But I just picture Thomas being like, all right, guys, let's go to die. Right? That's what he says. Like, let's, let's go that we all shall die with him. He was like, I mean, I guess, I guess we're going back to the beach. Because if they're going to kill him, they're, sh they're sure as heck going to kill us. Right? Disciples always... You know, the 12 at least always understood that when, when the time came, if they ever really, in the situations where they're starting to come after Jesus or try to stone or arrest, right, they're part of that. So they know, like, if Jesus gets, gets busted, we're, we're, getting, we're going with them. Right? They're, they're aware. That's why they all scatter and get real quiet after the actual arrest and crucifixion happens. Right? They're hiding. Right? We have the idea of Peter and the later redemption of Peter. Right? They know, and so Thomas is like, all right, I guess, I guess we're doing this. We're going to go die. Onward we march. And they go back. And as they come back, they're, they're greeted, what we, what we hear, not in, in Bethany itself, but on the outskirts. Right? Martha comes to greet Jesus. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, here it is, my brother would not have died. But even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, is coming into the world. She doesn't quite get it. I love this. She encounters Jesus and she's worried and she's mourning her brother and she's, she's terrified but she says, you know, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. That's her first sentence is, where, where were you? Right? She lashes out. She has an emotional reaction but then she tries to rein it in. But you know, I still, whatever you do is okay. I still believe in you because she knows who Jesus is. Right? And he, instead of reprimanding her for her lack of faith in the moments in, in an emotional time of her life, right? he doesn't reprimand her. He doesn't say, how dare you ask me where I was? No, what does he say? Your brother will rise again. She's like, well, I know at the end of all of, you know, at the end times when, when the Messiah comes, you know, he'll, he'll rise again. But, you know, that doesn't help me now. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like, he'll, he'll rise. I am the resurrection. This thing you think is coming is here. I'm it. It's a couple weeks away, but let's, 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 go, let's go into town together. Let's have ourselves a little sneak preview of what I'm going to do in a couple weeks. Where's Mary? Let's go find her. And Jesus deeply moved again. This is a skip. He comes to the town. He encounters the people, and he mourns with them. This is crucial. The Lord mourns with him. And we have the shortest verse in the whole Bible in verse 35 when it says just Jesus wept. 
Two words. If you ever have to memorize the Bible, start with that. Jesus wept. Super easy, right? He weeps with them. He, he's emotional with them. He cries. The, the words, the original language of weeping suggests that it's not just a, you know, a sadness, but a deep, agonizing sadness. As he weeps with them and mourns and shares in their pain because we serve, what, a great high priest who can empathize with us in our weakness. After the mourning and after the weeping and after he's allowed them to have their emotional space, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice and he said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound still with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Four days is very intentional. It was believed that the body started to decompose at that time. And so in the period of mourning, in the process of mourning in Jewish culture, the fourth day was one of the worst because it was, it was the day where all hope was gone, right? There was somehow like, well, maybe it was you know, an accidental, a mistaken pronouncement. You know, maybe we'll hear, <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly that they thought would happen. But for whatever reason, that fourth day is when they're like, it's over. It was the most mournful day because the body itself would start to decompose. And she mentions it. She says, you know, there's an odor. Should we really open the door? I don't think so. But Jesus is very intentional. If he had raised Lazarus the day after he died, there would be debates about his death. Well, he was just really sick. Maybe he was in a coma. No, Jesus waits. Those two days of waiting before traveling back start to make a whole lot more sense, don't they? It's not because he didn't care, but it's so that the glory of God might be put on display in this miracle. So that when he looks at Lazarus in the, in the tomb and says, come on out, and he comes walking out, there cannot be a shadow of a doubt that that guy was dead, and now he's alive. There's no coma. There's no really bad fever. There's no sleeping. He died they saw him die, they saw him be buried, they saw him put in there buried, and they smelled and could tell that he was dead. But not anymore. That's the beauty of this story, that he raises up from the dead that which, thought, which people thought could not be raised up from the dead. And we see that this message forces us to have a perspective about the kingdom that goes beyond our own comprehension and understanding. See, when it comes to the world and the way things unfold and the way our lives are planned out, both individually and in the grand scheme of all humanity, Jesus has the full view of the chessboard in question. He sees the game and he's the grand master who moves the pieces knowing what will happen 42 moves from that point. He understands how checkmate is going to happen, and he precisely moves everything in place the way that he has orchestrated it to do so. We can't really even see outside of a chess piece that we're stuck in. 
let alone view the board. We operate down here, and the Lord operates at 30,000 feet. And, And what this passage does is it forces us to gain a perspective on life as people that live under the kingdom of God and how he is choosing to bring it to fruition. Because we might have a way that we think things should go. We might have a comfort that we think we should experience. We might have a number in mind for how long we think we might or hope to live for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our children. We think that it's natural that everyone gets to outlive their their offspring. We think that disease is awful and that if it happens, it must have been because we did something wrong to deserve it. But that's not how God's economy works. The Lord uses the evil of this world for his glorious purposes. And the illustration of Lazarus is meant to demonstrate that to you. It's meant to show you tangibly, visibly, without a shadow of a doubt, that when you think God isn't working, he is, in fact, working. No matter how much pain there is in your life, no matter how persistent it seems to be, no matter how much you pray and it doesn't seem to get taken away, the Lord is up to something, but it is not in our timetable and not for us to always know. And sometimes you will get to know, and sometimes you will get to know later, and sometimes you will never get to know until the other side of heaven. But there is the other side. And that's the second point of this illustration. It's the second reason he does this, is to usher in a preview of what is to come. Listen, as you live in the world, and you struggle with whether or not God is at work in it, and you're worried about what's good or what's fair, and you're experiencing suffering, Not only do you know that God is working based off of this Lazarus account, but you also know that you serve a God who can conquer death. You are under the reign and lordship of Jesus Christ who looks death in the face and laughs at it because it has nothing on him. And so we not only know that when we struggle, God is working, but we know that no matter how much we struggle, death can't touch us. You may spend the the next, the, the remaining of your 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years on this earth. Maybe you'll be in great comfort. Maybe you'll experience pain until the day you die. But you will die. And when you die, if you are in Christ, you will rise again. And when you rise, that pain will be gone. That's a promise that the Lord seals. A yes and an amen. And as we move toward Holy Week next week, as we hit Palm Sunday and we celebrate this last week of Jesus' life, that's what we have to keep in perspective. The whole point of Easter isn't so that we can color eggs and chase bunnies, even though they're cute and sometimes scary. Some Easter bunnies are creepy. You ever have a kid cry when they're starting? Yeah. Right? That's not the point. We celebrate that with all the pain we see, with all the strife we experience, with all the loss that we've incurred, with all the mourning that we've done, that we know it has an expiration date. And that expiration date is when we die or when Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. We will experience joy. And, and as the song we sang this morning says, he will turn mourning 
to what? To dancing. And we'll dance together. Not like Presbyterians in worship. Maybe like Baptists. Maybe like funky Baptists. Right? Like the independent, like the whatever, you know, the ones that you're like, or the Pentecostals. Maybe we'll dance like them, but have a little better theology in the process. Right? I always thought their dancing was on point. I just wasn't a fan of the snakes. For obvious reasons, biblical reasons. But the Lord is good. The Lord does come back. The Lord will conquer death. And with Lazarus' account, he proves it. He raises him up so that mourning has turned to dancing. And he celebrates as he's wept with them. He then celebrates with them. And by the way, the results of this miracle is that the authorities start to get real serious about plotting for his arrest. We're getting to the end of Jesus' ministry on this earth. This was like the culmination of all the signs that Jesus does. This is the big one. When we started this whole thing before we're getting into the Easter realm, at the very beginning of this series, we talked about him doing a parlor trick where he turns water to wine. We're now graduating up to the big leagues where Jesus is raising people from the dead. And the Pharisees can't take him. Because only God does that. If this guy claims to be God, we've got to get rid of him. You're going to see the motions start to be made for him to be arrested and tried and crucified. And as he, next week, as we celebrate his triumphal entry, we move into the week of mourning that ends with rejoicing together. So as we prepare our hearts and minds to do that and remain faithful, my challenge to you is this. As Christians, when life hits and it gets hard, keep perspective. It is okay to mourn. It is okay to grieve. It is okay to shake your fists at God and ask him, what on earth is he doing? But inevitably, at some point, we have to accept his answer to that question. God, what on earth are you doing? A new thing. That's what I'm doing. Why don't you wait and see? That's a hard thing to ask us to do. And the only way that we can do so, the only way that we can commit ourselves to that is to to look at Scripture, to look at the examples in our own lives, to look at the testimonies of our brothers and sisters about how God is at work, and to continuously remind ourselves who it is that we serve, so that when struggle comes, we might know that Jesus is good and that he is working even when we can't see it. The prayer is that as we move through the next few weeks, that the Lord would allow us, that the Spirit would empower us to gain perspective on the Christian life. I don't want to belittle anyone's mourning or grief, but I want to put it in perspective. Compared to what God is doing in the grand scheme of your life, there will be a time where that mourning will seem insignificant to you. Not now, but someday. The very, very latest when he comes back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you died on the cross for our sins so that we might know you. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your steadfastness that as we wonder what comes next, as we wonder what possibly could be the point of the pain that we're living through, 
As we wonder how you are at work, we can trust and know you through stories like we've read today, through the accounts of Lazarus, who you raised from the dead. And just like you've raised him, so you promise that through you, you will raise us as well. We thank you for that grace, and we thank you for the means of that grace that we celebrate this morning as we get together around your table. Be with us this week. Remind us of your truth. And Lord, we pray for those in our body who are truly grieving this morning, who have experienced loss and pain and suffering or are still living through it, who have had injustice done to them in the past or current. We pray that you would be at work, that your Holy Spirit would calm them, remind them of your presence, and give them a peace until you come again. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,